0: And open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 19, Genesis chapter 19. Indeed, that's our hope. We are bound for the promised land. And our eyes are there, but we're not there yet. So we're going to be spending several weeks on Genesis 19. Uh, This week, we're going to introduce the chapter, be going to some other texts as well, and then we'll deal more fully with chapter 19 in the weeks ahead. We want to read a portion of it to uh, set the stage for us. Genesis 19, verse 1, this is the word of God. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked them living bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where the men who came to you tonight, bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, brothers, not act so wickedly. For I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, "Stand back!" And they said, "This fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal with you worse with you than with them." And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad this morning that we have before us the very word of God. Father, we thank you for the honesty of your word, the integrity of your word. Father, that it tells us as it is, Father. So we're asking now as we look at this, uh, this story. That, Father, your Holy Spirit will help us understand, Father, what this has to do with our lives today, how you would have us to live as those bound for the promised land, Father, we would pray. So help we ask, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Remember Lot's wife. That was Jesus' poignant reminder that came from this story. It's one of the ways we can approach Genesis 19, in fact. And today, by way of instruction, I want us, to remember not Lot's wife so much as to remember Lot's story. His story is extremely important in a day in which culturally, uh, having pitched our tents towards Sodom in the 20th century, we now find ourselves living in, the, in Sodom culturally in the 21st century. And if we were to read the whole chapter, uh, it's obvious this move to Sodom is a disaster for Lot. He ultimately loses everything. But Peter, in the New Testament, makes an amazing comment about Lot. And it's a comment that makes us wrestle with grace and sanctification and how we walk through this Sodom culture today. So to remember Lot's story, let's go to the text. First, know that Lot's story is a sad and sordid story. One writer describes it as gritty and raw, attempting to show the level of sin that had infected these cities. And indeed, this is a story full of sin from beginning to end, a story of judgment, of sin's judgment, of of sin's degradation. This chapter becomes a metaphor for God's judgment in in history uh, and in the Bible. Let's just say today that in our text, sexual debauchery defines Sodom. The Prophet Ezekiel helps us round out the picture of what sin in Sodom was all about. Ezekiel sixteen forty nine, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. Now, sometimes we hear today that they'll say, well, these are the real sins of Sodom. It's not sexual debauchery. Clearly, such a a declaration misses what's happening here in Genesis 19, as well as how uh, Ezekiel ends up the story uh, with his comments about Sodom by referring to abominations. You look at the list, there's pride, That's arrogance, it's preoccupied with their own greatness. Excess of food, the prosperous ease, or, or carefree ease—they had it all, but they did not aid the poor and needy. So they really knew physical blessing, uh, but they uh, didn't love others. They were haughty, it means they thought a lot about themselves, but not much about God. And then they committed abominations, like Chapter 19 describes. We also remember that Lot's story is a grace story. Now, what do we know about Lot? He was born in Ur, perhaps the, the most urban place on earth in those days. Uh, a thriving business and trade center, you'll remember, with its famed ziggurat that reached up to the heavens, they thought, for worship. Ur was the place to be. But when he's young, Lot's father, Heron, dies. And so when Uncle Abraham and Aunt Sarah say they've had God come to them, the Lord, and say uh, they have to leave, uh, Lot's grandfather, Terah, his uncle, uh, Nahor, and his aunt, Milka, uh, along with Lot, go with them. And they move to a place that actually shares the name of Lot's father, Haran. And then after Grandfather Terah dies, Lot has two options. He can stay with Uncle Nahor there and live in the the area around Haran. Or he can move and go with Uncle Abraham, who believes in a promise and is headed to, well, he still doesn't know where he's going. And we're not told why. But Lot chooses Abraham. Maybe it's a sense of adventure. Maybe he just likes Abraham and Sarah better. Or maybe Abraham seems more stable. Maybe he thinks that despite the promise to Abraham, Abraham might need an heir. But most likely, it's because of the prompting of God. It's God's grace. God's grace made Lot a believer in the same promises that Abraham embraced. Uh, So it's a story about grace. The Bible tells us Lot's a righteous person. That means he's a believer. That means he is a recipient of God's grace. So when Peter tells us about this in his second letter, he writes it almost as if we're not going to believe it based on Genesis 19. So Peter says it three times. This is 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. And if he rescued righteous Lot, speaking of God there, Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So keep that thought, all right? Lot's a recipient of God's grace, and he is a righteous person in his standing before God. And so with that grace story fixed in our minds, let's move to Lot's backstory that gets us to chapter 19. Turned out it was a very good decision to attach himself to Abraham. Abraham becomes a very rich man. And so Lot goes with him to first Canaan, then to Egypt, uh, and, and then back to Canaan. And Lot amasses his own fortune along the way. And so you remember in chapter 13, after they came back to, from Egypt to Canaan, their shepherds began to argue with one another over pasture space. They very wisely saw that this would be a t- bad testimony before the watching world. Uh, that he and Lot had to live some ways apart because of God's blessing. So he takes Lot up on the hilltop and he says, "You know, choose where you're going to go, and I'll go the opposite direction." And just what do we read? And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, Great sinners against the Lord. So Lot looks out and he sees what reminds him. We, we study this passage of, of, of Egypt, how fertile that land was and the, the valleys and the fields alongside the Nile River. And maybe, too, he thinks back to Ur, situated by the Euphrates River, and remembers the, the farmland there and how prosperous it was. Uh, uh, maybe his time in Egypt reminded him of city life, the life he enjoyed back in the land of Ur. We don't know all the reasons. We do know he did not pray. He did not ask God. And he chose Jordan's stormy banks. And in the memorable King James translation, what did he do? He pitched his tent towards Sodom. I mean, what could go wrong? Well, then soon we find Lot living in Sodom. Uh, Soon he is with the other people who live on the plain and the cities of the plain and they'd become prisoners of, prisoners of war with the invasion of the Mesopotamian River Alliance uh, after they rebelled against it. And that's when you recall Abraham put on his inner Rambo and he got his friends and uh, they went and guerrilla warfare, they recaptured Lot and all the people of the plains and brought them back home. And so Lot was probably present when Abraham met with Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. And then Lot goes unmentioned till the current story here in chapter 19. Verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. He's not there to play bocce or cornhole or talk about the weather. To sit in the gate means he's a leader Uh, He's um, uh, in Sodom. He's a significant person in Sodom. He at that moment appears to be very highly regarded among his peers. And then when these visitors show up, his righteousness shines as he offers to provide hospitality to the strangers. And he probably knows what happens to strangers who come to Sodom and spend the night in the square. And so he really has to press them, the text says, but finally they agree. And he provides their second big meal of the day. Remember, they've already had lunch down at Abraham's house. All right, got a great big meal there. Uh, And they get this big dinner with Lot. And it's then that Sodom's sexual debauchery becomes obvious. And so we reflect on what Peter tells us. This tormented Lot. But he did nothing about it. He was a leader in town. But he did nothing about it. He was tormented but he was tolerant he kept his wife and his daughters in this environment and yes externally the daughters are very obedient uh, to, to Lot but as we shall see later that was their external performance their hearts were not so and now he suddenly finds himself rejected by his peers for standing up for righteousness. So we're reminded of what Isaiah 5.20 says. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, that's Lot's world. And friends, that's our world today. So when he goes to rescue his future son-in-laws, what happens? Verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Uh, Threatened by his peers, but now he's just laughed at by his family. And the torment of Lot sees everything falling apart. And At that moment, it's it's really sort of easy to pity Lot. Now let me suggest, Lot's story is a cautionary story for us today. As we negotiate our culture today, we might not have all the answers this morning about how we should be living, but we certainly can learn today how not to do it. Um, What this pictures for us is someone who has personal righteousness in his judicial standing before God, but he's in a weak spiritual state and condition, and his family will be destroyed. Why? Going back a couple of weeks, uh, we said he's trying to walk too closely to the world. He's losing his sight. His eyes do not turn to Jesus so that the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. He loves the world so well that He loses it. The sequel to Lot's story that will end chapter 19 makes us cringe and is stunning in its depravity. For us then, can our story end differently? And this is where Lot's story and our story needs to be a repeated story. A repeated story of grace. We need to think differently from Lot. We start by remembering grace. Last week we saw the transforming power of grace in the life of Abraham. We saw the impact that grace had on his relationship with God. Grace that sparks a passion for God and compassion for God's world. And it leads to prayer. The week before, we talked about grace as well. That's when we termed the, the abuse of grace I mentioned a moment ago, that somehow grace is being misunderstood such that people are using it to live their lives as much like the world as they possibly can rather than being fueled to live differently from the world. We said that grace should not and does not make us want to be like the world. Grace works to make us different. To make us be like Jesus. And this understanding of grace, this goal in our lives, is, is absolutely key. Think back to our series on Colossians. As believers in Christ, we saw he's our identity. We are in Christ. We identify with him. We are like Jesus. In fact, we have been given his perfect righteousness to stand before a holy God. And the result of that is amazingly, right now, God sees me as a believer and you as a believer as totally righteous because he sees Christ's righteousness when he looks at us. That is how God saw Abraham, and that is how God saw Lot. In the same way that in Christ, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less, Friends, there's nothing we can do ever to improve our standing before God. And there's nothing we can do to lessen our standing before God in Christ. There's nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. We are totally righteous before God today and forever in Christ. That's the wonder-working power of grace The grace that also Abraham and Lot knew. Grace has made us what we are in God's sight. Now grace is at work in us to make us become in our daily lives what we already are. We define Christians this way. We've said a Christian in many ways is someone who's becoming what we are. So grace should never lead us to legalism, taking pride in my behavior, taking pride in my obedience, trying to to prove that somehow God was right when he chose me, Uh, trying to tell the world, look at how righteous I am. Nor should it lead to license, ignoring the importance of behavior, ignoring obedience. We should never say, because of grace, I can do whatever I want. You know, like 007 is licensed to kill. I'm licensed to sin. Because good old God, he's going to forgive. That's his job. Friends, grace makes us want to be like Jesus. And to love like Jesus calls us to love. And if that's not happening, then it's not grace. Lot seemed content for his family to have an outward obedience. To perform for the world. And yet because God, rather Lot, tolerated all the sin around him to the point that until chapter 19, no one ever noticed a difference in Lot and his family. Grace, it appears, never gripped their hearts. Again, saving grace means we belong to Jesus. Saving grace means I know my name is is written, uh, graven on his hands, it's written on his heart. My soul's purchased with his blood. My life is hidden with Christ on high. Nothing can change that, friends. Nothing at all. That's grace. And knowing that should make us want to express our love for God. Not just say we love God, but show our love in how we live. Shall we believe the promises about the promised land. Lot was tormented by what he saw, but he tolerated it. He didn't separate from it. He didn't love the people of Sodom enough to tell them the truth about their sin. And as we saw today, and we'll see in the weeks ahead, he paid the price. When Jesus calls us to remember his grace, he calls us to live a life of love. All his commands are about loving God and loving others. And that means loving others enough to tell them the truth, the truth about their sin. Lot did not. He tolerated the sin around him in exchange for what he perceived as the happiness of his family. He tried to walk as close to the world as he could instead of walking like Christ or even like Abraham. He didn't rock the boat by challenging their abuse of the poor and the needy and the weak. So how do we live that life of love that keeps us from legalism and from license and a devastating tolerance of sin? Well, it starts with remembering God's grace. Remember it. And then realize we have God's word to guide us. We have the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. And today we have the Lord's Supper to provide spiritual strength. The meal tells the story of God's grace. And that's a call to holiness. It shows us the price Jesus paid for our sin, the blood that flowed from His side. It shows us the depth of His love for us. It affirms our standing in Christ and calls us to grace-fueled holy living, turning our eyes to Jesus so that the things of this world do grow strangely dim and anticipating the day when we take our last breath and we see on him, him, him on the judgment throne, the risen lamb. This is the meal that Jesus invites us to today. He invites all who are believers in Lord Jesus Christ, who remembers a good standing of an evangelical church. But he also cautions us, this table is not for everybody. Jesus says, if you're not trusting in him for eternal life, he says, please do not take the elements. But if you want to know Christ, if you want to know his grace, if you want a relationship with Jesus, if you're beginning to realize he laid down his life for you as a sinner, he took the penalty for your sin at the cross then use this as a time to pray and, and tell Jesus that. Because that's placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And then talk with one us after the service. Children not yet been examined by the session should also not partake. Do have a class started today? See me today. Uh, now, for all who are believers in, good, in Jesus Christ and members of good standing of an evangelical church, we say come. But first, God's word says we've got to examine ourselves. Do we recognize the body of the Lord? We take that two ways. First, if there's some sin that we do not want to turn from like Lot, we tolerate it. We should not come. If we're satisfied to live in Sodom, we should not come. But if we need strength to do battle against sin, by all means, we come and we feast. Likewise, we're the body of Christ. What is the attitude we have towards one another? We need to make it straight before we come. Let me say, if you're watching online, we, we miss you, and I know you miss the Lord's table. Uh, I would urge you to do as we have this time as as if you were here, uh, simply uh, examine your life, confess your sins uh, to God, turn from that sin and ask for his strength for the journey. Let's now each one examine our own hearts, confess our sins privately before a holy God. A confession of sin that you'll see there in your bulletin below the hymn. We'll do this in unison. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. Join me. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done And we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is nothing good in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent, according to your promises declared unto men in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grant that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and holy life, to the glory of his name. Amen.